So we started this series a few weeks back, and we started with this premise of um, how do you deal with the giants in your lives? You know, we, t- we called it five smooth stones, but it's really as much about giants as it is about stones. And we talked about uh, over and over again about how we all have things in our lives that r- really um, are best called giants, especially if you consider the fact that a giant is anything that makes you afraid, anything that gets you stuck, anything that inhibits your progress you know, socially, emotionally, spiritually. We all have them, right? A giant can be anything, anything from a loss of a job. Uh, a giant can be something really, really serious that you're struggling with, like an addiction. Anything that just gets you stuck. I cannot move past this point in my life because there's something in the way of that progress. A giant can also be something like just anxiety about the future, fear of what might happen. And a giant might be some character in your, characteristic in your life. Uh, a giant could be hatred. You know, where you realize, man, I am not growing anymore spiritually because I actually have some hatred in an area of my life. A giant can be anything. It could be a broken relationship or a relationship that ended years ago that you've never gotten past. A giant could be anything. And so we started with that and then we started to talk about how we believe that faith equips us to deal with giants in specific ways. And the church has traditionally equipped its people to deal with giants in in a number of ways, but we were just taking a look at a few during this season. So we've talked about uh, the fact that we have these five smooth stones that can slay giants. And the five smooth stones for us during this season have been discipleship, community or connexity as we call it, service and outreach. And then today we're going to be talking about the the smooth stone of worship. And it's my belief that if, if you lean into these stones, if you pick them up and you use them and you open your heart up, that you will see giants fall over in your life. Some of it might be the giant that you think you're aiming at, but sometimes you know, we think we're aiming at another giant. When we get into it, we find out that actually there's a giant over here that we didn't really know about that's actually, that's the real giant. But if you lean into these things, I believe that your life can change and you can see those things that are, that are keeping you stuck fall away and you can get unstuck. And so uh, today we're talking about the stone of worship. And what I wanna do is I wanna take a look at what it means to worship first through the filter of the Bible and then kind of going beyond that to look at the why of worship. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to start actually in the Old Testament. Um, The Bible starts off with worship in a very, very primitive way. So if you were to open up your Bible and, and start reading in Genesis, in the first few chapters, you would find very, very basic, organic definitions and images of worship. And it basically revolves around some guy who might just experience some really cool moment with God in the wilderness. And then that person would take some stones and he would pile the stones up and it would, he would make an altar. And it would just basically be a, a way to remember, hey, when I was in this place that one time, God did something really, really cool. So I'm just gonna pile some stones up. And, and for the first few chapters of the Bible, that's what worship is. It's very primitive. It's very basic. Just like throw some stones on the ground. When you walk by those stones, oh, I remember that time when God did that cool thing. But as the Bible goes on, 
worship starts to become a little bit more um, lavish. And eventually, a guy named Solomon builds a temple in Jerusalem. Everybody heard of the temple in Jerusalem? So Solomon builds this temple. And it is the place where worship essentially becomes centralized for God's people. And so what I want to do is read a portrait of worship from the temple. Okay, so we're going to start in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. Uh, this, the, it'll be on the screens for you. All the Levites who were musicians. Now the Levites were a tribe of, of God's people that were set aside to lead worship. All the Levites who were musicians, Asaph, Haman, Jedithan, and their sons and relatives stood on the east side of the altar, dressed in fine linen and playing cymbals, harps, and lyres. They were accompanied by 120 priests sounding trumpets. If you've ever heard trumpet, trumpeters playing, like this sounds like a nightmare to me. <laughs> like if you ever think Drummer Joe is loud, you'd hear 120 trumpets blowing. The trumpeters and musicians joined in unison to give praise and thanks to the Lord, accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments. The singers raised their voices in praise to the Lord and sang, He is good. His love endures forever. Then the cloud of the Lord, uh, then the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. All right, I'm going to go on just one more passage, and then we'll pause and just a little bit and unpack this. This is in chapter 7, so it just kind of jumps over uh, to another image. It's the same gathering. This is the dedication of the temples. This is the same worship gathering. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven. How'd you like to be at that worship gathering? Whoa! Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good. His love endures forever. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord, and King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 head of cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. So the king and all the people dedicated the temple of God the priests took their positions, as did the Levites with the Lord's musical instruments, which King David had made for praising the Lord and which were used when he gave thanks, saying, his love endures forever. Then opposite the Levites, the priests blew their trumpets again with the trumpets and all the Israelites were standing. This is pretty extravagant, right? 22,000 cows slaughtered, 120,000 sheep and goats. It sounds like a backyard barbecue in Southern Georgia. It's a big deal. We go very quickly in the Bible from, from very primitive, very organic worship, just a pile of stones, to this 120 priests, thousands and thousands of sacrifices. It's very choreographed. It's very, very grand, you know, and it's very, very powerful. But I also love the fact that there's still this, there's this very basic element. Uh, I love what they sing. The Lord is good. His love endures forever. So there's this basic reminder strain that goes through it, but it's a, it's a big, big deal. And worship goes on like this for God's people for a long, long time. So we go from the Old Testament into the time of Jesus. The temple is still in existence in Jesus's day. They still do the sacrifices. Jesus goes to the temple. He is a good Jew. 
So we still have the temple performing sacrifices, but by the time you get into the, the, the heart of the New Testament, worship has changed for God's people. And so what I want to do is, is if you have a Bible and you want to turn all the way into the New Testament to the book of Colossians, I want you to hear some words that a guy named Paul writes to a church uh, in, in Asia Minor, in Turkey. And he writes this very, very simple statement about worship. He says, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, by this time, in the movement of God's people, church starts to look a lot different. So church for these folks would have taken place in somebody's home. And, and instead of 120 priests blowing trumpets, you probably had 10 to 15 people sitting around a living room talking about Jesus, sharing what's going on in their lives and singing songs, probably without accompaniment, probably a cappella. But Paul says, look, Sing these songs to each other. Remember the message of Christ. Let it dwell richly in you. But we see this movement from really, really grandiose descriptions of worship to something, again, that's pretty basic and pretty primitive. But I think you can look at it and you can go, well, what is a common denominator? And I think Paul hit, hints at it because also what Paul says is something that Dan alluded to. Paul says, look, whatever you do, Whatever you do, do it with gratitude. So gratitude is the transferable principle. Gratitude works whether you are listening to 120 priests blow the trumpet or whether you're sitting in a size of a church that looks more like a small group or a growth group. Gratitude. Furthermore, gratitude works when you're singing on Sunday morning. Gratitude for worship also works on Monday morning when you show up at work. Gratitude works for worship when you walk into a classroom at college or in high school. Gratitude unlocks worship. Gratitude is the thing that says, oh, man, I should just be grateful for life, if nothing else. And that can begin to unlock worship in our lives. It is the thing that starts the whole worship operation. Now, when I work with people, when I mentor them, or when I work with musicians here, I always like to start with a very basic definition of worship. And, and I do that because some of us come from church backgrounds, so we've grown up in church singing. We've grown up singing hymns. Maybe you grew up in a church like this, so you sang stuff that was more rock and roll-y. Some of us haven't. We walk into a building like this and we're like, we've never gone to church at all. We've never sung in a room full of people except like at a concert. So what is worship? And, and, and I found this definition that I've used for a dozen years more. And it's from a guy named Richard Foster. And he simply writes this, that worship is our response to the overtures of love from the heart of the Father. That's where it starts. And so if I can unpack that very, very basically for you, very, very briefly, I love the fact that it doesn't say worship is our musical response. Okay, first thing that you have to know is that worship isn't necessarily about music. It's just about a response. And the response can take place on Sunday morning in this space. The response can take place Sunday night around your dinner table. 
When you respond to the overtures of love from the heart of the Father, guess what? You are worshiping. You can respond to the love of God at your job. You can respond to the love of God out in the middle of the woods. You can respond to the love of God playing a basketball game. You have the opportunity. That's all worship is. It starts with a response, okay? It's that basic. I love also the fact that, it, that this worship unpacks the idea that we don't initiate worship. We respond to God. So it's not our job necessarily to go, okay, I got to worship today. Let's, let's get ready to worship. No, you know how you get ready to worship? You think about what God has done in your life. God initiates worship. He is the first word to us. And then we respond back, beginning with gratitude. And worship is simply this. It's a response to what God has done for us and who he is. And I love this because it separates the gifts from the giver. Because if you're like me, sometimes I can think about all the good things that God has given me. Friendship, a home, you know, many, many guitars. All these good things that God has poured into my life and I can say, thank you, God, you are so good. But other days, look, I'm gonna be honest, there's other days when I can't access that part of me. There's times in my life when the storm clouds are a little bit low, okay? And it's good for me in that part to separate God's gifts from God's identity. And I can go, you know what, God? I know things don't, don't seem like they're flowing into my life right now, but that's okay because I know that you are still a good father. And so I can still be grateful to you even when the storm clouds have gathered and they, oh, they've more than gathered, they've started leaking, right? So it all starts with this thing called gratitude, for me anyway. But here's what I wanna do. I wanna lean into this just a little bit more because like I said, I know people who have no no background in their lives for like this thing we do called worship, this thing that we do of singing together. I grew up in the church and I didn't grow up with a band. I think I've told you guys this story. I grew up in, in a church where there were pews and when I got involved in church, I wore a robe and sang in the choir and sang, I sat up at the front and then my, my parents would make faces at me while I was in the choir trying to get me to laugh. Um, and then when we stood up, you know, everybody stood up and, and, and the men all tended to put their hands like this and never like move and never let their face crack beyond. I call them the frozen chosen, right? Because they're just like, <laughs> I don't want to move because I might offend somebody, might offend myself. And, uh, and so when we come into a space like this, and even in E3, you know, you have people who raise their hands. You have people sometimes that go off in that space over there where there's more room and they can move around a little bit. Like if you looked back there, uh, during Sunday worship, you'd see uh, Pastor Dan and me, like we're going for it back there. It's like, don't get in our way. It's like a mosh pit back there. You might get, you might get not run into. So like, I recognize that sometimes this is weird. And so what I thought I would do is I'm just gonna walk through, uh, for those of you guys who singing together and worship, experience of worship is new or different. I'm gonna give you Eric's Worship 101, okay? Because I sometimes, I've been where you're at. And, and I wonder, what does it mean when people raise their hands? Why do they raise their hands? Should I raise my hands? It seems awkward, right? And so here's a couple things that I do. And you're getting this for free. You don't even have to pay extra for this this morning. <laughs> so one of the things I just do is I just, I pay attention. I pay attention. 
And what this means is that like, um, this is really basic for me. We, we have complimentary coffee every Sunday. I don't drink coffee during worship. I don't. Um, because for me, I believe that God is, is, is here in this room. And I want to give him my full attention. And so sometimes like it's tempting for, to, to have your latte or, or your cappuccino or your coffee and, and just like between verses, you take a little sip. For me, I just don't do that. And, uh, so, so I don't even tend to have a cup of coffee in this space because I'm like, this is not coffee time for me. This is God time. I want to give him 100% of my attention. If I do have a cup of coffee, like it's not in my hand, I'll just set it down. I'm like, you know what? It might get kicked over. That's all right. The floors are concrete. So I set aside all distractions and I just lean into this. And then uh, the other thing is that we have these screens, right? And the screens are good. The screens give us the words. The screens tell us what to sing next. Um, but guess what? The screens in this room function just like the screens in our living rooms do. And if you watch them long enough, I will, your eyes just glaze over. And you're like, I am just watching the screens now. And can I just tell you, God is not in the screens. <laughs> God is not in the televisions, Okay. And so what I do for that is like, you know, I don't have all the words to the songs memorized. I'll give you that. I don't. So sometimes I watch the screens, but then we'll sing a song that's kind of like it might have, let's face it, some of our songs are pretty simple. They don't have a lot of words. And we might sing, I love you, Lord, 10 times. By about the third time of that, I got the hang of it. <laughs> and so at that point, I'll close my eyes because I'm like, I'm not, God's not in the screens. I need to lean into this moment. So I'm going to peel my eyes away from the screens because let's face it, our eyes like flashy things, don't they? We will gravitate towards the screen. So as an act of discipline and as an act of commitment to pay attention, I close my eyes and I just go, okay, I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. I love you. Oh, I got the words wrong. No big deal. I'm not being graded on it. It's about paying attention. I don't even watch the band, even though most of these people are my friends and I, and I love watching musicians play. But again, I'm not here for the band. I'm here for God. And so I lean into that. And then the second thing I just kind of said is uh, I get physical. And if you ever watch me at the beginning of the gathering, like I'm kind of laying this out there so I can, you guys can really make fun of me now, but I will stretch before worship. Like I'll be back there and I'll like, oh, get the hammies warmed up, you know, and everything. Because worship is a physical act for me. You know, it's, it's not just about the, the, the music, but like I, I do get into it. I'm, I'm a musician, so I love, I love to feel the music, right? But there's something beyond that. There's something beyond that that is really, really important to me because over time I've realized that guess what? My body is connected to my mind and is connected to my heart and is connected to my soul. See, we're not fragmented beings. We're not fragmented beings in that we're like, well, my heart's in a good place. Um, but my mind is in an awful place. We tend to go the same direction. And what I've learned over time is that I can do things with my body in terms of getting blood flowing and breathing that actually enhances my worship experience. Let me say it in the opposite direction. Sometimes I come in here and I'm, in, I'm grumpy. And sometimes I come in here and I don't want to sing. Anybody else? Am I the only one? Thank you for being honest. And so you can come into a space like this and you can latch onto the subjective reality of your existence. I do not feel like worshiping. But what I've realized is that what I do with myself, my physical self, can affect my brain. And so sometimes I'll come in like this. I don't want to worship. 
But you know what? Like I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. And so what I'll do is I'll, I'll, I'll just I'll open my arms up. I'll breathe. And anybody who studies physiology will say that, that just doing simple things like that will change your brain chemistry, which changes your heart's chemistry, which makes you lean into this moment with God. So all of a sudden, when you came in, you're like, I don't want to worship today. But you know what? God's pretty good. And I'm safe. And I'm in this space. And so I lean into that. And like some of you guys, I, I've mentioned the fact that like some of us lift our hands and, and I do that. And I usually don't come up to the front because I feel like I'm distracting. So I'll, I'll stay in the back for a while and I worship because I don't, I don't want people to get like, like just be distracting to people. And I'll come up in the front, you know, and I'm lifting my hands and I lift and, and, and Dan does it as well. And Lori does it. And some of it, you know, the Bible commands us to, to lift our hands. And so part of it, you know, is I do that and I get it. But part of it is I do that because when I do this, it opens me up to God. Something cracks open inside of me. And so lifting our hands and using our bodies in worship, it's not just like a biblical commandment. It's not just something that crazy Christians do. I think God actually wired us up to say, look, when you open yourself up physically, I can access parts of you that I couldn't otherwise access. And you will experience me in ways that you wouldn't otherwise experience me. So that's a little Eric's Worship 101. When you see me acting all crazy, that's what's going on in my head. I'm here to meet with God, and I take it really, really seriously. I go beyond the words. It's not about the words. It's not about the band. It's about God. What I want to do now is in the time that we have left is I want to turn our attention to, to why, the really deep why. Why celebrate? Why make a fool of myself? Why you know, jump around or dance around or cry? I do all these things. Why? Well, I want to do that by returning to the David story yet again, uh, maybe for the last time in this series. First uh, Samuel chapter 17. We've heard these verses before, but just bear with me as I read them again. So David has gone to King Saul. Remember, he's asked, uh, Saul gave him his armor. David said, I can't use this armor. And then David took his staff in his hand and he chose, remember, five smooth stones from the stream. And he put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag. And with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine, Philistine, that's Goliath. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, remember that, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. And he said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Remember that, that you come at me with sticks. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by the sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord. Remember that. The battle is the Lord's. And he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it, struck the Philistine in the forehead. Stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. 
So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword, drew it from the sheath. After he had killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. And when the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. So <clears throat> keep those images in your mind. Let me ask you a question. You guys recognize this guy? No, I don't recognize him either. Maybe that guy. How about this guy? Anybody? Big show from WWE. How about that guy? James Bond. Remember the villain's name? Jaws. Anybody know what those three guys have in common? What's that? Their height. All three of those men uh, have a, a condition called acromegaly. It's a, uh, it's a medical condition. It's a, a tumor that's on your pituitary gland. And acromegaly causes people, I, I've not found any evidence of, of women, so uh, it causes men to grow very, very large. Um, you know, six foot, nine, seven feet. There's a couple other people that, that have it. Um, acromegaly is this is known scientific condition. And one of the other things, one of the other effects of acromegaly is that it, it can radically, radically affect your ability to see. Um, it, it inhibits your eyesight quite radically. And the reason I show you those pictures and the reason I uh, point this out to you is, is I want to explore uh, a thought for, for just a moment. I was reading something a few months back and uh, some scholars have started to conjecture that Goliath actually has acromegaly. He's tall. He's anywhere from six foot nine, seven feet, eight feet tall. He's huge. But what some of these scholars, they started to look at the text and they said, why is Goliath behaving quite strangely if you really looked at the situation that he's in? Remember, Goliath is a man of war, right? He has experienced this stuff. He is getting ready to do single combat, which is the way a lot of battles were decided in, in the ancient world. But the first thing that we notice is that Goliath has his shield bearer out with him to do single battle. And what some scholars think is like, well, if Goliath was really getting ready to do battle, he would take his shield from his shield bearer and get ready to, to do it. And then they say that they notice that when David comes at Goliath, he says, are you a dog that you come at me with plural. Does David have sticks? He's got a shepherd's staff and a sling. But Goliath sees sticks. And he comes in, in, in the text, he doesn't say how fast or slow Goliath is moving, but we're told David runs at him. Goliath is unprepared for this battle. And so what a lot of scholars say is that you know what's going on? Goliath can't see. He has his shield bearer with him because he can't see what's going on. And the shield bearer is there to say, look, this is what's going on. And when he says, uh, David, why do you come at me with sticks? It's because he can't tell that Goliath has a sling in his hand and is about to wipe him out because if, if Goliath sees a sling, being a man of battle, he probably knows this can be dangerous for me. So Goliath, even though he seems like a giant, 
And even though he seems like he is going to wipe out everything that David represents, Goliath is a lot more vulnerable than what you would ever think. And uh, I love the way Malcolm Gladwell puts this. He says, look, he says, when the Israelites look over the battlefield, when they saw from high on the ridge, they saw an intimidating giant. But in reality, the very thing that gave the giant his size was also the source of his greatest weakness. And he goes on, there's an important lesson in that for battles with all kinds of giants, the powerful and the strong are not always what they seem. So, Goliath is a giant. And it appears like he's got this thing in the bag but he's much more vulnerable than even he realizes. And there's another thing going on. You see, in just a chapter before this, there's another reality that Goliath has nothing, he has no awareness of. There's a guy named Samuel, and Samuel is a leader, a spiritual leader in Israel. And Samuel has been charged with God to find the next anointed king in Israel because Saul, who was king, was being rejected by God and and God tells Samuel, go find the next king. I'll show you where to go. So Samuel wanders through Israel and he goes to Bethlehem and he goes to this guy named Jesse, his house. And then uh, Jesse has seven sons. And Samuel is like, I'm supposed to be here. The next anointed leader of Israel is in your house. Let's see your sons. So Jesse parades all the sons out. Samuel's like, not it, not it, not it, not it, not it. Then let's listen to this text. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him. This is David, by the way. He sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said to Samuel, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel went to Ramah. You see, the thing that David doesn't know is that God has already singled David out to win this battle. David, I don't know if Samuel told him why he was being anointed. All David knows is that he's been anointed. And maybe going through his brain as he's running at this giant is, maybe I was anointed to my death. All I know is that I have been anointed from God. And then David in this radical act of faith says, hey, uh, guess what, Goliath? This battle's not about a spear and a sword and a javelin. The battle is, remember what he says? The battle is the Lord's. So what I'm trying to say is that Goliath never had a chance. This giant never stood a chance because not only is he much more vulnerable than he appears, he's going up against God's beloved, anointed leader. Let me spell it out for you. Uh, We all have these giants in our lives but I've come to believe that most of our giants in our lives are actually made of straw. They're made of straw. They're much more vulnerable than we think. They may look indestructible, 
but they're really valuable. They're really vulnerable. And they're vulnerable not because of anything I do, but because of what God's done. Now, we all have these things. We have these giants. And I've been saying over and over again, we need to learn to fight them by God's ways, not our ways. So again, David has the sword. He's got the armor. He says, no, I don't want it. I have to fight my giant this way. I have to fight Goliath this way. We're the same way, right? So we have these giants. This is my giant for today. I know you guys have been waiting. What's he gonna do with that? And so we have giants in our life and we try to deal with them in our own ways. So we might have a giant Um, Who knows what it is? Maybe it's a broken relationship. Maybe again, it's an addiction. But we go, you know what? I'm gonna deal with this in my way, so I'm gonna move to a different country. And and we go, no, fall over, giant, fall over. And you know what the giant does? He just keeps popping back up. Or we say, you know what? I got this giant in my life. I got this thing, this brokenness in my life I have to deal with. But you know what? I'm just gonna distract myself because if I distract myself enough, and, and let's be honest, we have a culture that we can get distracted in, Right? You want to watch, you want to binge watch Netflix, binge watch Netflix. You want to shop, shop. All manner of distraction. And we think that this deals with the giant. And we knock over the giant, he just keeps popping back up. When's the giant going to go away? And we say, we're just going to try harder. I'm going to white knuckle this thing. If I just do this thing, if I really try hard, he'll fall over. The giant just keeps popping back up. What's going on, man? Or we just ignore it. Maybe if I just stand here, the giant will just fall over on its own. Anybody ever do that? Just have something in your life and you just keep beating on it and you keep, you keep take, taking it on through your methods and you think it, it's just big and it's bad because it's not falling over. But you know what we never realize? We never realize that the battle's not ours, the battle's the Lord's. And it's not with the spear and the javelin that the battle gets won. And let's be honest, I think life is also trying to tell That giant's not that powerful anyway. He just looks really powerful because every time we beat him, he pops back up. So what do we do? The battle is the Lord's. We have to let God fight the battle. And the good news, hold on, is that he did. He fought it and he won. Let me show you what I mean. Back in that letter to that church uh, in modern-day Turkey, the letter to the Colossians, it's one of my most favorite passages in the New Testament. Paul writes this. Look, he says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, basically he's just saying, look, when you were outside, when you weren't recognizing what God had done for you, he said, look, when you were like that, God made you what? Alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to what? The cross. All right, and then this is it. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by what? The cross. Now, when Paul uses the phrase powers and authorities, that's not just like a a term for the civil authorities in Paul's world. That's a spiritual term. So what Paul was saying is that he, Jesus, did something so cosmic at the cross that essentially all of the spiritual power and the spiritual authorities that fight against us, that keep us stuck, that inhibit our growth, that push us down, 
at the cross, Jesus breaks them. He cosmically defeats evil decisively at the cross. Now, he doesn't do it in our way because our way would have said, Jesus, pick up your sword and slay him. And Jesus is like, no, 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 that's the world's way. Actually, the way this happens is you have to let, I have to let myself be crucified. Now, what this means to me is that this thing that I keep trying to knock over by my world, by my methods, it doesn't exist. Not because of anything I've done, but because Jesus broke it. The giants are dead forever. It's just up to me to learn to live in that reality. But that thing that's holding me back, the thing that's holding you back, Jesus broke it. He destroyed it at the cross. And now we're free people. We're free people. That's good news, people. Uh, so we're going to go to the table in a couple minutes. And we're going to go to the table as free people. We're going to go to the table today as people who, even, when, even the giants in front of us that appear to be large, we're going to go to the table today going like, you know what, giant? You're already broken. And because it's been a few weeks since I've brought a, a soccer example into, um, into these walls, I want to show you what a heart of gratefulness and a heart of thankfulness looks like and, and, and rejoicing looks like. So uh, there was a big tournament, this, a big soccer tournament this last summer called the Euros, the European Championships. Um, all the countries in Europe put, send teams uh, you have the powerhouses like Germany, England, Spain, Portugal, and then you have uh, some countries that never fare very well. Well, this year, uh, there was a country, Iceland, who entered the tournament. Now, Iceland is a tiny country with a small population, but they discovered that they started winning games. They were winning games they weren't supposed to win, and they became sort of the, the underdogs of the tournament, right? And everybody was rooting for them. And they finally, they played England, which is one of the traditional super powerhouses of soccer, right? And not only did Iceland capture the hearts of so many people, but Iceland had this announcer, this commentator, who captured what it means to be excited when there's a victory that's won on your behalf. So we're gonna play uh, just the last 30 seconds of the Iceland versus England game. And it's a video of the announcer. Just listen to what joy sounds like and looks like. Go ahead, please. Is 
Ísland 2 er lokastaðan hér í Nís. So, that's the why of worship, people. That's why I sing. Did you catch that phrase? There's this phrase, and I, don't, I obviously don't speak Icelandic, but there's this phrase that he utters over and over, and the best I can tell is, ekipui, ekipui. He's like, ekipui, ekipui. And the, the video translates, it's over. The game's over. But you know another way you could say it? It is finished. Anybody remember what Jesus says from the cross? It is finished. The why of worship is that Jesus has broken the power of the spiritual authorities, the things that would hold us back, it's over. And the why is I get to celebrate that with him, through him. He says like, never wake me up from this dream. I'm like, never wake me up from this dream. I celebrate because our God sacrificed himself to set me free and to set you free. The way I would end it was this. The, the, the smooth stone of worship does not just slay a giant in my life. It does those things like pride and narcissism. But you know what else does? It just acknowledges that the giants were killed a long time ago and I didn't do it. And it's just my place to say thank you. And it is finished. 